Good morning, church. Man, <clears throat> if you're at home, you're missing out. It is a crazy crowd today, really bustling. Easy, Bruce. I know, Bruce about to come out of his seat. Between Bruce and Linda, this place is hopping. <laughs> just name a couple names, not just random two names I picked. It is wonderful to see everybody. Um, great to be here today. Uh, but, but before I start, we were talking a little bit ahead of time. Uh, obviously, Michael's talking about mentioning something. I'm just going to say something briefly about the Roe v. Wade decision. Uh, for those that know, we're an SBC church. SBC has been uh, obviously on the, the side of having that overturned, an effort to preserve life. Um, that said, uh, I don't think we're counting that as like a, it's over or it's settled or it's a victory or it's done. Um, for, for those of us that want to see uh, babies born and lives lived, we know to do that, we need to, to help mothers, especially those that are very vulnerable, struggling to get from A to B. So while this is wonderful that, uh, you know, the states will get to choose, nothing was banned. Uh, all, all they said is you just can't get away with it federally anymore. So our work's not done. Our goal is not to stop abortion as a church. Our goal is to lead people to Jesus Christ. So keep praying. Keep praying for those lost folks that are still troubled, that feel like they don't know where, where to turn or what to do anymore, that perhaps they've lost something that they see as very valuable. And, and let's be open and honest with them about what we know the Word says about life and the way that works. So while we're, I think, pleased to see this happen, uh, it doesn't mean that it's over or it's solved. Um, and so I think as a church, as an SBC church, and based on what we have today, our work's not finished, um, so let's just keep on trucking. That said, we're, we'll be in uh, Ezra. We're doing the sermon series of Ezra and Nehemiah. We'll still be in, in Nehemiah. I'm sure everyone's like, I'll go back to Ezra. No, Nehemiah 5, we're moving along. Um, and I call this sermon, God Steward of Stewards. Mike started this series with a God comma something. And I really like the theme of this. I like trying to keep everything in that. Like, let's talk about God's role in these different chapters. This one, God's role is in there. Um, but it was, it was harder for me to find like a real aspect of God that, that shines through in this chapter other than his people trying to be kind. Um, so I went with steward of stewards, and I think you'll see why as we go through this, a steward just being someone that's in charge of something, often used for money. Uh, and that comes up in this chapter. What we see is kind of what happens when money is ignored, if you will, and the, the toll it can take as a, as a process goes on. So we'll dive into this more, but first let's go ahead and uh, read, then we'll pray, and then we'll dive in headlong and see what happens. So we're in Nehemiah 5, just one chapter today. And I don't think there's too many names, so it might be a little bit easier for old Chris. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. And said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. 
Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Bless you. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I was appointed to be their I also persevered in the work of, on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people." Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thankful today to gather in this place, um, to be able to do this and not have to worry about people uh, attacking us and having to have somebody, you know, with one hand on their sword during the whole service, Lord. Help us not to ever take that for granted. Um, but likewise, Lord, I pray for us to have opportunities to, to be able to live a life in service of you, Lord, that mirrors Nehemiah here. Uh, good things happen, bad things happen, the, the ups and downs and the, the, all those sorts of things that, that are bound to occur as we trudge our way through this world, Lord, knowing that you are there and you will never forsake us, and that if we seek you and we work for you and we serve you and never ourselves or anything of this world, Lord, that we will succeed. You will succeed. You will not be thwarted, Lord. Help us to remember that. And as we study today uh, to see how they're dealing with some very worldly issues in very godly ways, Lord. Thank you for the time to get us in your sense. I pray. Amen. All right. So we're probably thinking another money sermon. I feel like I've preached one of these about every month now where he's talking about money again. Um, turns out money is discussed a fair amount in the Word. Uh, one of the things that we committed to do a few years ago is we're just going to take books of the Bible and try to exposit, th th uh, teach them as they're written, expose exactly what the Word says and nothing more in a linear fashion. Uh, it makes it easy not having to pick topics. And one of the things you find is nearly all the topics you want to talk about are in every book. <laughs> At some point it comes up. Things like infighting, uh, finances, proper worship, hard work how to conduct yourselves, how to talk to others, how to relate to people that aren't Christians. These sorts of things are covered over and over and over again because, no, as no, no surprise for those of us that are in the Word regularly, it is exceptionally rich and does provide great information even in today's world despite being uh, words written thousands of years ago. So money's talked about a lot in the Bible. 
But this isn't about rich and poor. So uh, there are chapters talking about that. But even when we talk about rich and poor, that's too easy of a line to draw. We're going to see here kind of two versions of rich and two behaviors therein. You may not have caught it, but we'll get into it a little bit as we go. It's rather about the priority of money. You can be very rich and have a right priority for your money, which may explain why you've been blessed with such richness. You can also be very rich and have a poor priority of money, putting it above all things, where your life is dedicated to the, amass- the, the amassing of wealth. And that, that tips the scales the wrong way. So, the people have had enough. It starts with a great outcry arose from the people and their wives. I like this and their wives bit because for those of us that are married, when you hear the situation that they're going through, chances are these guys have maybe been hearing about the struggles feeding the family, the kids are hungry, you know, we're all working on the wall, fine, you come with, we're going to let them hear it, right? Enough! We're fed up. Now this time they're not angry with the attackers, we just read about that, right? They're standing at the wall, they're wearing chain mail and shields and swords trying to prevent attacks. That's not what they're mad about. This is against their Jewish brethren. These are people that would be considered inside the inner circle. These aren't outsiders. These these aren't the folks that we saw threatening them that are doing this. This is the the Jewish people hurting the Jewish people. I mentioned here that it's not said if it's news to Nehemiah. We see that Nehemiah uh, is telling us that there arose a great outcry. And we see that Nehemiah takes action here once he hears how, 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 how serious it had become. But I don't know that it was news like, what are you, you kidding me? Because Nehemiah seems to have, the reason I put it in here is, you might be scratching your head like, well, for somebody who's organizing all this, how could he not have seen this coming? Well, chances are he kind of saw it coming, but maybe he didn't know the details, right? He's lending some stuff, they were lending some stuff, people are working, they got their fields, and all of a sudden he realizes, wait, what's been going on exactly? Wait a minute, this is unacceptable. Now we're getting to a place where there's a famine in the land. Food is running short. Time is running short. Guys, we're not going to do this. We're not going to punish people for doing good things because, uh, you know, times are tough. Let's be helpful. So what exactly was going on? The building of the wall was taking a lot of time and effort. If you remember the last two chapters, specifically chapter 3, you just studied it in small group again, it's everybody. It's not just the builders. <clears throat> if you were a blacksmith or, a, you know, a, a goldsmith or a jeweler or a perfumer, you were building on the wall. Everybody was working on the wall. Due to this, fields, vineyards were left alone. Fields where we grow uh, crops, vineyards where they made wine, uh, livestock, these sorts of things, you can't be in two places at once. So if you're working on the wall, you're not tending your field. Some paid third parties to work those fields, or would just maybe sublease them, right? I lease it to you for a pretty good price. You tend it. You get to keep all the profits. You're paying me for the use of my field. These sort of arrangements would have been reached, just like we would do today. Really no difference. Others didn't bother with that. They just mortgaged the land outright. So the fields are going to be left alone. Hey, I'll go to the banker. Banker, what do you give me? Uh, I'll give you you 50 grand for that land. Okay, it's your land, but then I'll come buy it back when I'm done with this. Sounds fair. We see in the word here, some were borrowing just to pay the tax on the land. So they weren't trying to get ahead here. They were just trying to make ends meet. They had to borrow money to cover their tax bill for the land that they own, which they're getting nothing out of right now. And worst of all, we see some had sold their children into slavery to cover bills. Now this, we could say it's slavery lied, or these are just over to the friend's house, but make no mistake, this was somebody surrendering their kids to another Jew 
to do work, be a, a second or third wife, who knows what's going on. Either way, it's really unsavory and it's not cool. And they did it specifically because they have no money. They have bills. I've mortgaged my land. I've done this. I've financed everything I can. I own nothing except my kids. Well, maybe those kids could come work for me. Oh, okay, um, I guess that's what we'll do. And the key thing here that was frustrating is that it was happening all between Jews. So these would be in folks that were all in agreement that the law of God was the law. The law of Moses, very important. How we treat one another, how we treat those that aren't Jews, that's all prescribed in the law. And this behavior is a violation of the law and Nehemiah knew it. They were not allowed, per the law of Moses, to exact interest or usury for other Jews. They could do that for non-Jews, but not other Jews. Your brothers, you will loan them things free of charge. That was the law. They are not doing that. And Nehemiah is ticked. I like in 5.6 that we know that he was very angry when he heard their outcry in these words. It's not, I mean, I was, I was sad of heart or very angry. But despite his anger, he takes a moment to compose himself and organize his thoughts. Don't miss that. It's really, really great. 5.6, I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. He didn't run out there and shove them, burn their houses down, throw things, scream, sit in their yard, make a scene. He took counsel with himself and he brought charges against them. In the same way he's going to go to somebody and say, you're in violation of the law, he realizes I probably, in order to do this properly, ought not be in violation of the law. How should I conduct myself when I go to rebuke those who I believe have not conducted themselves righteously. I best conduct myself righteously. Or whatever's going on, I just add insult to injury, right? I'll put this fire out with gasoline. And they say, well, you're outside the law too. Well, well you did it first. And pretty soon it turns into some giant debate and nobody gets anywhere. So he centers himself. He, gets in, he, get, he reins himself in. Takes a moment, composes himself. Then he goes to those in charge of all this mortgaging and borrowing and he gives them what for he didn't show up and say, well, if it pleases the court. He told them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers, been sold to the nations. They, 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 could, they were silent. Couldn't find a word to say. He gave them what for. Here's my summary. HSV, that's the Hecox Standard Version. We have worked so hard to bring everyone back from captivity, and you're taking your brothers captive because of money. Knock it off and fix the issue. You are God's people and you better start acting like it. Now that last line, you might think, well, he added that. Nope, that's here. Now, not exactly here, right? But he says, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, and here's the important part, to prevent the taunts of the nation of our enemies. What Nehemiah is saying is when you act this way, you make God look like a joke. You say, oh, we love God and we follow his law. Then you do this, breaking the law, punishing your brethren, putting them in terrible binds, selling their kids. The world's going to laugh at us. They're going to say they don't even believe what they say they believe. Church, when I wrote this passage, I thought to myself, granted, it's my translation. This is not God's word verbatim. But this will preach every week since it was put on paper. This will preach we have worked so hard to bring everyone back from captivity. We're not bringing people back from Babylon, but we're bringing them out of the world here. 
And you're taking them captive because of money. You're taking these people that are, are coming to Christ and you're trying to rein them in and put shackles on them because you deserve it. Knock it off, fix the issue, you're God's people and you better start acting like it. If you ever wonder what the world sees, Nehemiah knew then the world sees all this backbiting and all this infighting. Beyond this, though, it turns out Nehemiah's been lending them what they need without interest or even repayment. So while they're over here making money on this, Nehemiah is taking from the, the coffers of the governor because he's in charge. He has a lot of resources at his disposal, and he's helping them out. He's doing the work, the work that the other folks should have been doing as well. So Nehemiah has already put, if you will, his money where his mouth is, right? This isn't, I'm going to change too. This is, I've been doing it right, not because I'm so good. It's because it's what the law said. It's easy. Follow the law. Nehemiah commands them to give back the lands that have been mortgaged, etc. And this, this is where the story you're thinking, now what's going to happen, right? They agree to do it, and Nehemiah makes them swear. What I love about Nehemiah here is years ago, he knows how cheap words are. You bet, Nehemiah, we'll do it. He says, oh yeah? Get the priests in here. We're going to swear an oath that you're going to do it. And the priests show up, and they swear an oath. They swear an oath. Now, Around these days, um, it, it's for like, a, I swear, whatever else, we have a crime for perjury. But, but in these days, when you made an oath, it was a covenant. And if you broke it, it was a big deal. I mean, much bigger deal. It was like you could get excommunicated and they, God might make you, you know, catch fire. Things like this occurred. This was not unheard of in these days. But even with that threat of oath-breaking in the time of, of the Jews... <laughs> He follows that up by cursing them if you're still lying to me. You said you'd do it? Great. Swear an oath. You swear an oath? Great. If you're lying, I want God to shake you out of your lifestyle the way I'm shaking the dust out of my robes. The, the, the tone that this sets is not that Nehemiah is better than them. It's that Nehemiah trusts God alone. I don't know. You guys can say this all day. And if you do it, awesome. There's no problem here. But if you don't do it, you're a liar, you've broken an oath, and I hope God gives it to you exactly what you want, which is the same treatment you've given all these people while lying to me. All I'm asking you to do is what's right. Nehemiah is not playing nice here. He's not trying to be Mr. Hey, let's just get together and work. We got work to do. You guys are screwing it up. Fix it. What's interesting is Nehemiah is rich. He is very, very rich, but in a good way. You don't become governor of Judah, even though he just came back, right? When he came back, if you remember, the king sent a whole bunch of stuff back with him. You know who's in charge of all that stuff? Nehemiah, alone. He can have a court of governors and advisors and all that stuff, but at the end of the day, the king appointed him. So Nehemiah could throw big parties and eat all this food. They even have prescriptions, and he talks about this, of what the governor would get, because the governor was like the president of the area. This was a high position with a lot of stress, and, and some reverence would be reasonable. And they had allotments of this and the other. Nehemiah took advantage of none of it due to the needs of the people. He doesn't decry it. He doesn't rid himself of the wealth. He doesn't just divvy it all up immediately. He stewards it because God put him in charge of it. He knows this. He prayed for it. He's been here. Now he's in charge of it. 
Now that he's in charge of it, there's things that, hey, the governor gets this, and they said, no, no, I don't think we're going to do that. Or we'll do it in a different way, right? But I need to keep track of this because it's part of my duty as the person that's running this show. I've been appointed to be a steward of this, and I'm going to be stewarding it the way God would have me steward it. And it turns out God described all this. If I care for my brothers as they have need, and I don't charge interest, and I'm not selfish, and I don't think more of myself than I ought to, the stewardship of this kind of runs itself. And what's ironic is he's doing this with a huge amount of money, and these other you know, bankers, maybe poorer Jews, by it, but still very rich, are not. They're taking advantage of their other Jewish you know, brethren to get richer. Not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is growing slowly poorer, but he's growing slowly poorer in a way that's very metered in allowing to get stuff done. It says here that prior governors were burdens on the people, but Nehemiah was not. I mean, for those of us that sit underneath a government that feels like perhaps it's a burden on us, right? Uh, nearly everybody can relate to this at some point. Imagine how refreshing it was that Nehemiah was not that. Nehemiah was a, a true governor of and for the people, of his people, God's people. He took his job and his appointment very seriously. Sharing is caring. Isn't that true? It says, Nehemiah fed 150 people with the food allotted for him as governor. Just to give you an idea, and I think uh, that's probably debatable, but I think this is, is in here to let us know the opulence that the governor enjoyed. Nehemiah didn't change those rules, right? I think this is really awesome to consider. Nehemiah didn't say, no, stop slaughtering the, the, uh, the, the oxen. Let me see if I can find where it is in here. There's a lot of words. Each day, one ox, six... Each day, one ox, six sheep, and birds... Every day, an ox was slaughtered for the governor. Now, I like meat as much as anybody, but that's a lot of, of meat. An ox and six sheep every day? And if you wondered how, many, how much food that is, it's apparently enough to feed 150 people every day. Every day. People probably said, why don't you stop slaughtering the ox? Save the oxen. Nehemiah says, well, that's part of the process here, right? There are people that raise the oxen and they get money for them. And we pay for those and we buy the sheep or whatever, right? The, the process, the, the, but the difference is I don't want a bunch of meat to be rotting. I don't want to be stuffed to the gills and all my family and friends getting special treatment. He invites Jews and other people from the area in here. There were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from nations that were around us. So his table was open. It was, a, it was a people's table. 150 people ate courtesy of the governor's allotment every day. Maybe people that couldn't afford food, hadn't had meat in a while. Folks have been working steadfast on the wall and their fields have gone into... We don't see a lot about it. One of the people got sick or injured. I mean, they're moving stones and beams away, hundreds of pounds. What if that falls and breaks your leg? You're done carrying and you can't tend your field. You can't do anything. Come sit at the table till you're healed. You'll be one of my 150. I'll take care of you. It's fine. What an encouragement that would have been. Versus, hey, you don't owe money. You're going into debt. You've got to sell your kids. That's what's on the other side of this equation. So, points to ponder. Number one, don't burden those closest to you. Number two, when rebuking, take time to think clearly. Close. Second, third here, I guess. But when, when being rebuked, number three, when being rebuked, take time to think clearly. <laughs> Same advice, 
Both sides of that equation. And finally, when you are blessed, bless others. Seems simple. Pretty, might, might even think these four points don't really require much pondering, but let's ponder them anyway. Number one, don't burden those closest to you. So, number one, church members can be some of the most hateful people. I'll be honest, some of the folks that I've had the roughest time with in my life have been folks that go to church. And I find that exceptionally distressing. I've had run-ins of people in the world, too, that are real jerks, no question about it. But there's something about church people that has this air of, uh, I'm, I'm better than you um, because of uh, my status in the church. And the, the, the dark reflection that that is of what the Bible teaches us about ourselves as believers is really deeply troubling. Because of my uh, salvation, I'm somehow better is nonsense, right? My understanding of my salvation proves that, the, as the old saying goes, I contributed nothing to it except the sin that made it necessary. That's absolutely true. I did nothing to earn it, to brag about it. It's like getting someone handing you a random card and you win. I'm the best player. No, it's not true. You did nothing. The card was dealt to you. There's no skill in what you did. You, it, was a, it arrived with no doing of your own and it turned out to be great. But if someone else doesn't have that, pray for them. Not lord over them and, oh, you poor fools are going to be cursed. None of that. When, talk, when I say don't burden those close to you, it might be tempting to say don't ever ask anything of those close to you. That's not what a burden is. And sometimes you may have to burden those closest to you with something difficult. But in this case, it's in, intentionally burdening them with zero care for them. Overburdening, perhaps, would be a better way to say it, right? May it never be. May we never be those people. We should, at the very least, be caring for each other in the body of Christ. If we can't take care of the people in this congregation, there is no hope for the world to see anything good. Well, they fight just like we do, maybe worse. They claim one thing, and then they fight twice as hard against each other. All the arguments, all the infighting. If we infight and cut each other down, the world will notice. Nehemiah is calling them out for that here in a time when the world's already paying close attention to what they're doing. We don't need the bad press. <laughs> Start acting right. Not so that we look good, but that's a bit, an added benefit. When people actually see us do the things we say, it will be massively more impactful, the things that we say. If I say, don't rob banks, and then I rob banks, either I'm a hypocrite or that message doesn't mean anything. And people will have to decide for themselves what makes the most sense. Let's not put people in that position. Let's not burden each other. Let's work. Let's help each other. Let's pitch in. Let's try to make things better. That can also be leading to rebuking. It's necessary. Propping each other up as a body. Rebukes will come. Nehemiah does not throw these guys out of Judaism. He doesn't curse them and say, you'll never be worshipped or you'll never worship God in his presence. You can't come to heaven. But he does rebuke them. When rebuking, take time to think clearly. Taking some time to let emotions calm is smart. Nehemiah does it here, and he does it for good reason. I'm sure when it said he was very angry, he was very angry. Probably unbelievably disappointed in what's going on. All these hard workers, all these people pitching in, and now they're robbing each other blind, taking their kids slaves, stealing fields. Letting your emotions calm down is smart. And it also gives you time to be thoughtful about the situation. The reality of the situation is, yeah, there's a famine as well. Some people are, don't have money. The folks that are managing the banks, that's their job. They do need to make some money there, but not this much money there, right? 
They're not wholly and, and completely beyond help. They just need some guidance. They need some rebuking. They need, to be know, they need to know that we love them and care for them and want better for them and that what they're doing is wrong and they need to fix it. It's tempting to lash out and not understand fully what's happening. Anytime you get wronged or you know something's wrong, it's tempting to just get in there and knock it off. Quiet back there. Straighten up. Fly right. Without any context, without any understanding of why they chose to do this or what's going on. I believe we as a body should set an example of, quote, harsh but fair when rebuke occurs. Rebuke, the word itself is kind of a strong-sounding word. Nobody wants to be rebuked. I'd like to be counseled. (laughs) Could we counsel? Nope. We're past counseling. It's time for a rebuke. What you're doing is wrong. You're invested in the wrongdoing. You must stop. The counsel has occurred. We don't see it here. But these guys know the law. They're Jews. (laughs) They've been counseled. They've opted not to follow the council. They've ignored the law. They're not following the world. It's time for a rebuke. Here comes the governor. Fine, I'll do it. Knock it off. Straighten up and fly right. I know what's going on, and you know what's going on, and I know you know what's going on, right? If it starts to sound a little bit like a parent talking to him, and I mentioned this before, it is. Nehemiah is very fatherly here. He's disappointed in his kids. I'm not mad, just disappointed. Now, he's very angry. He is mad, but the disappointment lingers after the anger passes. You guys must do better than this. You're, you're, you're literally ripping us apart as a group of people. we got work to do. We've got to be on each other's team. We as a church, when we have to rebuke, when we have to intervene, harsh but fair. I love you. I care for you. It has to be this way. I want to talk about it, and that's fine. But do know, unequivocally, this has to be fixed. You have got to fix it. Likewise, when being rebuked, take time to think clearly. In Cairo's prison ministry, we, we have a saying that is reacting is what you get and responding is what you want. If you react, you're going to just get what happens. Right? Someone tells you to stop, I'll do what I like. Okay. But if you take time to think clearly, just like Nehemiah did on the other end of this, just like I'm sure these Jews did before they responded, you get what you want, which is probably a better you, a better relationship, an understanding Forward progress, not an an impenetrable wall or an infinitely deep rift that can't ever be mended. Nobody really wants that. Sometimes you get it because everybody starts reacting. We just start throwing, just immediately pull guns and and then we wonder why everybody got shot. Well, it's because nobody took time to stop and think. Think, take time, think clearly, pray fast, whatever you got to do. Don't just react. Both sides of rebuking are well served by extra time and careful thought. I can't say it enough. We see it in the word. So many church fights come into this place where one or two things happen, in my experience. Nothing is ever said. Massive amount of assumptions and two camps form. There's no real interaction between them. And this massive uh, divide widens with zero conversation. And then one day it just explodes. We both built huge cases against one another. Oh, yeah? Well, let me list off the 45 things I've been paying attention to for the last three years. Oh, yeah? Well, I got a list as well. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to resolve anything. Nobody really wants to get together. It's, you've been separated for so long. No one's been thinking about rebuke or joining. It's been factions, deepening, deepening factions. Extra time, careful thought. Be on the same page. Don't be a burden. Nobody likes to be rebuked. I don't... Yeah, I'm comfortable. Nobody likes to be rebuked. But if we get over ourselves, we can grow. 
Take your licks. If they're coming from God, (laughs) if the law says you're wrong, if Christ said you're wrong, if Paul says you're wrong, if the Word says you're wrong, you're wrong. You may not want to think that you're wrong, but you're wrong. Taking criticism is easier when we know the rebuker cares for us. If you want to know why those two camps of 45 things come up, that's why that happens. They don't even care about me. That is heartbreaking to to mention, church, but it's the truth. That people in congregations think other people in the congregation don't care for them. They wish them ill. If you are a congregant and you wish another congregant ill, repent of that. That is not biblical. It is not biblical. You may want to rebuke them for something. That's fine. But if you want to see them crushed into dust by their sin... Square that up. I'm telling you, it's like Nehemiah. What you're doing's wrong. Knock it off. We'll, we'll talk about that. We'd love to talk about that. If you really are stuck in this place, and no, no, no. What they've done is beyond reproach. I can't ever be friends with them again. I refuse to do it. We've got to fix that. Those kinds of things plant roots that go pretty deep, and they're sometimes almost impossible to fix. We end up with things that just rip churches apart. Tough love. I get it. But to, if you know the rebuker cares, it's easier to take criticism. That's why it's important that everybody in the church knows that we care. Care. I want the best. I, Chris, want the best for every congregant in this church. If you disagree with that, if you think, no, you don't, I have proof otherwise, let's talk about that. I, I, I'm, I got a loud mouth. I often misrepresent myself. I'll be the first to admit it, but I, I honestly do not wish ill on anybody in this church in permanence. I don't. I may want somebody's we talked about this before, right? Let Lord turn their hearts, if not their hearts, their ankles, so I know them by their limp. If you're actively engaged in fighting the church, I'd love for that to be very clear to me so we can figure it out. But, but do know that our desire to see our church crumble or have people destroyed is, is, is never a goal. Never a goal. And when you're being rebuked, it's easy to think that. The very fact that you're rebuking me, I take as a personal offense that you dislike me. Nehemiah did not dislike these guys. I don't think so. I think he cared for them deeply. They were his brethren. They were part of the the plan that God has started up here. But he needed them to get sorted out. What they were doing could not be allowed. It can't be allowed. Guys, I need you to sort it out. People are watching us. Come on. You know what you're doing. You know better than that, right? I hear all these things that sound like my parents. When I say Nehemiah's folly, I could hear all this. We taught you better than that. You know better than that. I can't believe you did that. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. All this stuff. Yeah, it's the story of my life. And you learn how to take rebuke. You know why I could take some of that stuff? Because when I took time to think clearly, one thing I never doubted is my parents cared for me. I knew they did. I saw the sacrifices they made for me. So it was easier to take rebuking from them in some regards. And the last point is, when you're blessed, bless others. Being rich can be a blessing to so many. Now, Look, please don't stop listening here. This isn't a health and wealth gospel thing. Hey, it's okay to be rich and good for you and God's going to anoint you. Let's give up. None of that. But the reality is God is the steward of stewards. He controls all things and he can make one person exceptionally rich. Solomon, exceptionally rich, did great things for God with the money. Nehemiah, same. Being rich can be a blessing to so many. It is not necessarily such. It could be a huge detriment to you and others, but it can be a blessing. And being generous is a great way to show that God is sovereign. 
So if somebody is exceptionally wealthy, has been blessed with riches, good fortune, however you want to view it, generosity is a tremendous way to say, this is not really my money. I mean, it's a lot of money, and it's in my name here in the world, right? But I've, there's bigger plans for this money. I could feed 150 people a day with what God's given to me. And then Nehemiah did it. Nehemiah wanted the world to see that money meant less than God. That's what it boils down to. If you're poor and you do everything in your power to get by and you're cutting this and that, no time for church and no time for prayer, no time, just got to work, you're in a worse position than Nehemiah is. We don't talk about that very much. We see poor as a virtue. I'm not saying that it isn't. I'm not saying it can't be. You can be poor and have God the focus of your life, knowing that God's going to take care of your needs. Or you can be poor and have money as the focus of your life, scrapping and scrounging every day of your life. No, I don't have time for God. I got to work, 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 work. I got to cheat and steal. I got to do what I got to do. Right? I'll ignore all the law. I'll ignore God completely. But I got to feed my family. I got to do what I got to do. What I got to do. This has to happen, and God can't do it for me. I got to do it. Or you can be exceptionally rich. Be generous, serving God. Very clear. God continues to bless me. I'm going to continue to bless others in His name. Help the work of God in this place. Or you could be rich and have no time for God because you're doing the same thing with different results as the poor person that is spending all their time working and scrapping and scrounging. 18 hours a day and I can't make ends meet. 18 hours a day and I can make a billion ends meet, but I want to make two billion ends meet. Same problem. It's not about the money or the quantity. It's about the priority. This is the crux. Keeping God the focus. If you're blessed, bless others. Spoiler alert, if you hear my words today on Facebook Live, you are blessed. However you slice that pie statistically of monetary wealth worldwide, if you've got a mobile device and you're watching me on Facebook Live right now, you are blessed. You're blessed. So when you are blessed, bless others. Are there people richer than me financially? Yes, many. But there are way more people on this earth poorer than I am. If you hear my words, it's, it's statistically the way that it is. So stop counting the beans and start worrying about who makes the beans grow. What can I do with these beans to give back to the person that has changed everything for me? So what about us? Are we an undue burden on our church family? Can we knock it off? <laughs> Two pretty good questions. Uh, obviously, if the first one's a no, uh, great. Don't be a burden, right? But if you're introspective and you think about this, maybe. Maybe an undue burden. And if so, can we knock it off? Why are we doing it? How can we knock it off? What needs to be knocked off? Number two here, how can we be better rebukers? And then number three, how can we be better rebukees? I don't know if that's a word, but maybe today. I'd see it soon in a dictionary near you. But things like rebuking are tricky business. How can I rebuke with care? Do a good job of letting the person know that I care for them. I want what's best for them and the church. I, it's, it's a big picture thing, a rebuke. But then when I'm, when I'm on the other end of that rebuke, because I've done something that isn't good and warrants a rebuke, how can I handle that well? Take that criticism. Take that advice properly. Not lash out. Knowing that I care for them, they care for me. Okay, that's fair. Like these folks here, we will do what you ask. And they did. Like, 
You're talking about a dream come true as church leadership. <laughs> Things that never happen in church leadership. You tell somebody what they're doing is wrong, and they, uh, they say, we'll restore these and require nothing from them, and we'll do as you say. I'm sorry, come again? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I thought we were going to have a fight. You're just going to do it? No, no, I get it. Nehemiah was clear to them that he loved them. They knew he cared. That went a long way. And finally, what blessings can we forego or share for God's glory? When it comes to finances, I, I put the word blessings in there because I, everything's a gift, right? I mean, the, the, it's a grace. It's God's grace that allows me to take one more breath. Money, all this stuff. How can I share whatever blessing I have? Can I forego it like Nehemiah did? He did not opt to take the governor's thing. Or you can argue that he shared it, but uh, he didn't enjoy it. He didn't do what the other governors had done. What are we governors over that God has put us over? The steward of stewards has put us over that we could forego or share to glorify God penultimately. That's what we really want to do. Not look good, not make a name for ourselves, not make a name for our church, but glorify God. Let's think about these questions as uh, we go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for a, a, a passage that I think is very challenging on how we can conduct ourselves inside the church, Lord. How we love and care and rebuke one another. How important it is that we are honest and realistic and how we will fall short. But if we truly want to grow in you and become more like you, then we need to be ready to receive and give rebuke, ready to share of the blessings that you have put us uh, put in our lives uh, and, 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 and be ready to manage. I guess we could talk about steward uh, from, from small to large, that which you would appoint to us to care for in your name, Lord. Thank you for this time together, Lord. Thank you for a church family that I pray continues to desire to see your name glorified in this community, in this state, in this nation, Lord. And I'm thankful to get to serve alongside people that care for me. And Lord, I pray that we learn to care for one another in the same